0: Hello and welcome to In Safe Hands, an instructional podcast brought to you by the Victorian Building Authority. I'm your host, Andy Belairs. This is episode two of a three-part series showcasing some of the highlights of the 2021 VBA Surveyors Conference. In the previous episode, we heard from Risk Management Specialist, Michael McLennan on how to best manage risk in a project. You can catch up with Michael's episode in the podcast feed or for a full recap of his video presentation, head to the VBA website, vba.vic.gov.au, where you can find all the presentations made to the 2021 conference. This time around, we're hearing from the former head of the School of Architecture and Built Environment at the University of Adelaide, Professor George Zalanti. Professor Zalanti boasts a multidisciplinary background in architecture, urban and regional planning, building surveying, business administration and construction, as well as extensive research and teaching. In 2007, he also achieved Australia's first doctorate in building surveying. Professor Zalanti's presentation discussed the roles and accountability in the building process, from the main players in any building project, and goes into who each is accountable to and what actions they're accountable for. But first up was a run-through of the different roles that come into contact with any building project, the people Professor Zalanti calls the
1: players. I was allocated a role to speak about the roles and accountability in the building process. And it seemed to me that when we do those things, there are really three parts to this question. And I try to break that down. Firstly, identify who the roles were and the players in the actual group. Look at the accountability. That is, who are the people accountable to and what are they accountable for? And I'd like to finish with giving you an idea of a possible solution how we actually get the industry working better. So let's take them one at a time. The first one, looking at players. I'm only concentrating on the main players here. It would be silly to list all of them, but these are the ones who actually have the biggest impact across the board, so let's talk about those. Firstly, the owners. Well, obviously, the owners play a major role, but they tend to surround themselves with advisors, project managers and financiers initially, at least, to get going. They sometimes have many other advisors as well. Very few of them are actually building people themselves, so they need advice in order to get going. The second group is designers, architects and engineers, they play both a direct and indirect role via design standards, architectural statements, and so on. They often advise, uh, they do the actual design work themselves, but sometimes they also can operate for, depending on the scale of the project, they can operate independently for other consultants within the group to provide advice. So who approves? What were the statutory functions? Well, there's local government, obviously. There's state government. There's planners, building surveyors. But also, term industry advisors. In, in some states, private building surveyors give advice to uh, intending developers or intending builders about how best to prepare the design work in order to get it through the approval system quickly. Then there's the private certifiers themselves, the, or private building surveyors in some states, who actually play a statutory function and then improve the work. And there's the whole myriad of specialist consultants like fire engineers, access consultants, energy consultants, and so on. But that begs the question about the approvals. Well, initially, if you don't get financial approval for a major project, you're unlikely to to go off. So financial is certainly one. Then there's the traditional planning approval, building approvals, and then there can be specialist approvals depending on the scale of the project. And through the course of the construction, there have to be approvals for progress claims throughout in order for the project to actually proceed. Of course, during the project itself, there's a series of inspections, there's mandatory inspections, there's voluntary inspections, and the question I often ask is, what are we doing the inspections for? Is it for the community interest, or is it to minimise risk? It's interesting, if you speak to the insurance industry, they always use the term minimise risk, and I have no issue with that, but I don't think that those two issues, community interest or minimise risk, actually conflict. It's just the way that they are interpreted. But the one that I prefer, the one that I think sets the tone for everything, is the issue of community interest. If you do everything in the interest of the community, you will always minimise your risk and you will actually do the job as appropriate. The next group tends to be the builders. Well, they're generally responsible to the client, budget tends to be a major constraint in their work and sometimes self-certify on completion. Now, that's not necessarily the case across Australia, but in some states like mine, at the end of a major project, the builder has to sign a bit of paper saying that he or she has constructed the, the building or the structure in accordance with the approved documentation. It's a form of self-certification and it's a part of the quality assurance system to try to uh, ensure that the builder has done the right thing. Then there's material suppliers themselves tend to rely on external data about compliance of materials and that indirectly involves the federal government via standards assessment and even things like border control where people have to assess what is coming across the border. Specialist installers who may certify their installation by the builder. Now, what that actually means is if there's a specialist installation that needs to go into a building and you have to have a specialist group to actually install it, they act as subcontractors, if you like, to the builder, and that when the builder submits his or her final completion certificate, he has to rely on these people to say that they've done the job properly. The next group is project managers. Now, let me say when, when I talk about project managers, I do not mean the traditional construction project manager on a building site. I'm talking about those who are responsible to the client And those people have turned the industry, in my view, upside down in the last 20 years. And that's primarily because they're responsible to the client. So their primary interest is often, not always, but often financial. They often come from a management or financial background themselves. Very rarely, sometimes they can't have an engineering or architecture or construction background, but that is rare. And that means that their understanding of the building process may not be as good as perhaps it should be. And because they actually are paid by the client themselves, the builder, or whoever it is, then there may well be a conflict of interest situation and the decisions they make may be tarnished by that perspective. The next group is the insurance companies. Obviously, they want to minimise their risk and they can control the industry by either refusing to provide PI cover or making it prohibitive in terms of cost. And I can give you a great example. I was involved with myself only last year. A good friend of mine, who is a practicing civil engineer. He has a very small private certification business on the side that he uses just to improve his actual engineering practice. And his income over several years averaged about $12,000 a year. It's not from the private certification. That's not a large amount of money, but it's enough to keep him going and to actually, as he says, it informs my engineering practice. Now, over the years, he's paid around about $3,000 for PI cover on an annual basis. Last year. His quote was $15,000, that is more than what his income was. So he thought, okay, if that's the case, I will cease practice as a private certifier. So he asked for a runoff quote, and in our state, South Australia we're obliged to get runoff insurance for a period of time to ensure that uh, the work done in the recent years is actually still covered for a certain amount of time. The quote for that came back as $15,000. In other words, there was no difference. So clearly the insurance company was telling him, we really don't want you anymore. We want to get rid of you from our books. The sad thing about that was that this guy never had a claim lodged against him, never had a client say, I don't like your work, yet he was the one they were trying to get rid of. Now, luckily, we were able to find one other provider in this state, only one, we had to go outside of our industry to do that, who was able to provide him with insurance at an acceptable term. But that's just one example of how insurance companies can control what's going on. The next one is the court system. Now, decisions being based on the law seems very, very sensible and very logical. But for very large, complex cases, like many of our big cases are, the judges or those who judge in judgment need to be educated about the whole process. Now, I can give you one example. In our state, many, many years ago, in the early 90s, there was a spate of footing failures across the state. One person took a local government to council. In those days, it was all done by local councils. And the court ruled that a, the individual had the right to have a crack free dwelling. Very simple ruling. But the implications of that were that as soon as there was a crack in a new dwelling, people ran off to the court system. And so initially the insurance companies just paid up. The councils also had deep pockets so they were involved in in paying as well. That continued for several years until one council and one insurance company decided to make a stand. And that lasted 49 days in the Supreme Court here in Adelaide where they had to slowly educate the actual judge as to what it all meant. As a result of that, the finding was quite different that just because you have a mic crack in your house doesn't mean the building has actually failed and everything then just changed overnight. What well, the point I'm trying to get across there is that courts make a decision based on the law but for complex projects, you have to actually teach them what the process is in order for them to make the appropriate final judgment. Now, what about accountability? The question there is who to? Well, are we accountable to the client? I think we are. We're accountable to the owner? yes. To the builder, most definitely, consults, perhaps. But the overriding one that everybody seems to meet is the community at large or community interest, as I prefer to call it. We're getting rid of those terms or not actually using them very much at all nowadays, yet that is a very important aspect. But if you keep community interest at the forefront of all the work that you do, you very rarely will go wrong. So what are we accountable for? Is it quality? Well, I think so. The specification actually says yes. When I say we, I'm talking about the industry in the broad sense. Any specification has issues about quality and workmanship. Compliance, most definitely, yes. Budget, well, it's in the contract, so there is somebody in the system that's definitely responsible for that. Life safety, all people are responsible for that. The amazing thing is that all of those can actually have conflicts between them or amongst them. I've heard many building surveyors say to me, I'm not interested at all in the quality of the workmanship, I just want to make sure it stands up. And I think that's true. But that's also a short view about how the actual industry operates. And by fostering that approach, you don't do yourself a service. So, how do we achieve a solution? I think, once again, if you keep this issue in mind, you must act in community interest. I think you will actually go some way to understanding what my view is here. And these, I must stress, purely my views. Firstly, education. I think it's important that we increase the number of building surveying degrees across Australia. Is it an importance to review all building surveying degrees to actually ensure their relevance? And I don't know Victoria very well, but for a state the size of Victoria, do they have enough recognised building surveying degrees? I think the answer from my perspective is no. By recognised, I'm not talking just about state government. I'm also talking about the professional body. I increase the articulation process between TAFE and universities, that seems to be dying away of late. But I found when I was, I was at UniSA for 21 years, and building surveying was one of the programs I was in charge of, and some of my best students were those who articulated from TAFE. I think it's also incumbent on us to introduce more postgraduate degree pathways because that allows cognitive professionals into our profession, and I've heard in the past that some people are afraid of that because they don't want engineers coming into building surveying or other professions because they think that they're gonna take over. In fact, I think quite the opposite is true. I think they bring a richness, a difference in perspective, And it actually informs the profession a lot more. It's important to improve the link between universities, professional bodies and governments. Remember this, that if governments lack faith in a profession to regulate itself, they will have to step in. And I think there have been examples of that in recent years across Australia. Industry itself, our industry, is incredibly fragmented. We have eight different states and territories. We act as eight different countries and have eight different systems. And I often wonder if building control itself should not be a federal function. Take it away from the states altogether, which is, a terrible thing to say, given that I'm talking to a Victorian government conference. And even the work that's being done by the Australian Building Code Board over the years, they come up with fantastic opportunities. They put it out there for each state government to actually take up, and the state governments generally do. But if you go back and look at that work later on, three, four, five years down the track, each state has also already gone its own way. They tend to do that. It's inevitable. So I'm not necessarily arguing for it, but it just raises the question, should building control be a federal function? Another aspect which is really important to me and I think it's important to our profession is professionalism itself. Professional bodies need to take their role much more seriously than I think that they do across the board. Now, I'm not just talking about AIBS, I'm talking across the board. We hear a lot about code of ethics and the issue of self-certification and conflict of interest. We're now hearing a lot about code of conduct and I know there's a new one being written in Victoria, but the way I talk about the code of conduct is really how we meet our ethical obligations and sometimes I think we... Focus so much on the code of conduct, we forget the ethical situation we should really be looking at. The other aspect about professionalism is that we should never be afraid to actually take disciplinary action against people, members of our profession, who do not behave appropriately or carry out their jobs as they should. There seems to be a fear and has been a fear for many, many years to intervene. I think our professional bodies tend to want to step back and wait for the courts to do their job or the state governments to do their job or even individuals to take the people to court. Then they intervene and say, deregister or kick somebody out. I've been uh, lucky over the years to have been a member of seven different professional bodies, four in Australia and three overseas. Let me tell you, I think we can learn a lot from professional bodies outside our our very strict profession. They are very proactive. They keep a measure uh, of what's going on. They look over the profession very, very carefully. They have specialist committees that do that. And if something goes wrong or there's a a problem, they act very quickly, they investigate, and then they will take action. It's important for professional bodies to improve their relationship with both universities and government. They need to be taken seriously in order to be relevant. It's not unusual. If the government doesn't believe you're doing the job that you should be doing, they ignore you. It's also important to improve program accreditation. By program, I mean the actual degree itself, how it's accredited. Now, it's accredited... Well, obviously by the university, but it also must be accredited and recognised by the industry. It's very important that the state government recognises that, the government recognises that, but if the profession itself by its professional body doesn't recognise that, then it's a real problem. It's also important to introduce and improve individual accreditation, that is, the way that we register individuals to actually practise, and that I've always believed that that should be done by the professional body itself. I know state governments are involved across the board, what should be happening is they should be working hand-in-glove to make sure this, it's a unitary system. Another aspect that's very important to me is that professional bodies need to talk to one another. They need to improve their relationships. And I'll give you one example of that. I think that's broken down lately in Australia. Many years ago, I was part of a group that put together a joint approach to accreditation across Australia for the AIB, the AIQS, and the AIBS. The rationale was that those three professional bodies looked at degrees that generally housed all three of those professions within one degree with different pathways. So to expect a university to host three different groups at three different times to pay for accommodation, to pay for airfares, to pay for wining and dining, and to go at different times, and also to expect the university to prepare very extensive accreditation documents was just unfair. So the idea was, why don't we do it jointly? We can reduce the number of people going, Many of us, like myself, would recognise across the board so we could wear two or three hats. And it worked very, very well for some time. Until in recent years, it's fallen apart. I speak to one professional body, they blame the other two. And it doesn't matter who I speak to, they always blame the other two. To me, that's a cop-out. I think there is a problem there and we should be working together. The other aspect that concerns me greatly is gender equity. In building surveying, generally, 51% of our population is female in this country. And in building surveying, I'm aware that There's only one female who is listed as a fellow. There's no life fellows at all. And very few females in our profession, in building survey, are actually in senior management roles within organisations. That also concerns me. Now, I'm really hurt by the Victorian government's push to actually increase the number of females in the profession. The other aspect that everybody keeps getting away from is this enforcement disciplining. You should not be afraid to carry out enforcement. Now, that is not just to actually get problems fixed up on site, but also to discipline the individuals who are not performing. I think of late we've come to be aware of that, but often we've acted after the horse has bolted. That can be by government authorities, by professional bodies, and by the court system. We should never be afraid to actually take that on because to be a true profession, we must be able to do that. So it's been a very, very quick presentation. My idea was to actually stoke some, some discussion But my conclusion is this, that I believe in a system with clearly articulated roles for all the players in our industry, each of whom is accountable to the community interest. Professional bodies and universities must be proactive and lead this debate. Otherwise governments will not take the profession seriously, will act to correct anomalies. This has been happening for a long time now in our country and especially in our profession. If we do nothing or continue the way that we have, the government, the insurance industry and the courts will do the job for us, and we will have lost control of our profession. I actually believe that's what's been happening for some time now. I guess the question for you is, is this what we want? Thank you.
0: That was Professor George Zalanti, who until he retired in 2019, was head of the School of Architecture and Built Environment at the University of Adelaide. For more information, or to view Professor Zalanti's presentation in full, head to the VBA website, that's vba.vic.gov.au. You'll find all the presentations to the 2021 Surveyors Conference there too. Join us next time as the Chancellor of Western Sydney University, Peter Shergold, discusses his role as one of the authors of the 2018 Building Confidence Report for the Building Ministers Forum and his views on rebuilding public trust in the building process.